Creative. Expertise. Technology. Patents and people. Intellectual property is the core of business today. Protecting it is a priority. From a single innovation to large corporate IP issues, we're talking about it here on IP Council. Join IP Council host and attorney Peter Lando, partner of Lando and Anastasi, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome. Welcome to IP Council on the Legal Talk Network. I am Peter Lando, partner with the Cambridge, Massachusetts intellectual property law firm Lando and Anastasi, where our practice includes all areas of intellectual property law. And of course, you could learn more about our firm by visiting our website at LALaw.com. I'd also like to take this time to thank our sponsor, SunTrust, offering private wealth management solutions at SunTrust.com slash law. On today's show, we will discuss intellectual property issues in employment law. It is widely recognized that IP assets are important to create and sustain growth for businesses. Generally, employees and contractors provide and use innovations that become these IP assets during their employment. And these days, it is not uncommon for employees to change companies several times over the course of their careers. It is not a surprise, therefore, that IP issues may arise in employment law matters, including disputes over confidential and proprietary information, which is in two basic categories, technology information, which may include methods and software and diagrams and the like, and business information, which may include customer lists and marketing plans and supplier lists and so on. Also, questions of ownership, rights to use and or disclose information, and competition's use and access to such information. What can businesses do to protect IP, including confidential information, created by contractors and employees during the course of their employment and afterwards? Joining me today to discuss these and other questions is my guest, Valerie Samuels. Valerie is a partner and co-chair of the Employment Law Group at Pasternak, Blankstein, and Lund in Boston. Valerie's practice includes all types of employment matters, including drafting employee handbooks and employment agreements, non-competition covenants, and the issues regarding the solicitation of clients and employees. She routinely appears before federal and state agencies and courts, and she has spoken widely before businesses and professional groups on employment law issues. Welcome to IP Council, Valerie. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for having me on your show. Okay. Let's get right into it. There's a lot to talk about. Sure. Let's start with something big and broad. What what role does employment law play in helping companies protect their IP, goodwill, and key employees? Well, employment law has really a profound impact on all aspects of a company's ability to protect its IP, its goodwill, as well as its key employees. Um a good employment lawyer, for example, can make certain the company's contracts are appropriate and implement and draft uh, HR policies and practices that are consistent not only with the law, but with best practices. I see. And of course, since, since well over 95%, uh, or at least I should say 95% of IP is, is trade secrets, um, uh, the, the opportunity for dispute is 
is evident. Uh, a lot of a lot of folks believe they can keep what's in their head as they <laughs> as they walk out the door. So I I can see some some areas for conflict. Can you give some specific examples of situations that have been uh, problematic for employers? Absolutely. Uh, this has been a very hot topic in the news lately. For example, just in um, recent months, in September 2010, for example, a Chinese national, a Mr. Huang, he was working for Dow Chemical, and he allegedly uh, took trade secrets and published them in collaboration with a government-run university in China, and then assisted them in beginning research using uh, Dow Chemical's um, procedures and formulas for uh, growing organic insecticide. Um, this was in the news, as I say, in September, because he was arrested by the FBI and indicted for economic espionage, as well as for transporting stolen property from the U.S. to China. Um, in that same time frame, during October 2010, Akamai Technologies was again in the news because one of its employees was arrested. He was charged with wire fraud after he allegedly tried to sell confidential information to a foreign government. We believe that government was Israel. Apparently, he contacted the Israeli consulate, and um, they turned him in to U.S. law enforcement, which then set up a sting operation to snare the employee. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, a more mundane situation, although no less important um, to the owners of the trade secrets, concerned the nooks and crannies um, for which Thomas's English muffins have become famous. In a recent case decided by the Third Circuit in July 2010, the case is Bimbo Bakeries versus Botticella. Mr. Botticella was a very senior executive, and he had signed a confidentiality agreement, but he attempted to walk across the street and work for Bimbo's direct competitor, Hostess Brands. Apparently, only seven people in the world know the secret formula for making these nooks and crannies in the English muffins, and Mr. Botticella was one of them. It sounds sort of like a simple thing, but Bimbo sells about half a billion dollars worth of English muffins. So obviously, this is something they took very seriously. And and uh, I, I see. So they were, they were likely trying to enforce some uh, confidentiality restrictions in an employment agreement, and, and there you have it. Uh, Absolutely. Okay, and and the first two examples, the um, the Dow Chemical and the Akamai uh, cases, um, highlight a whole a whole another area uh, that um, that that this could become criminal. Yes, absolutely, and I think we're going to see more and more of this as competition, particularly between the United States and China, and the United States and India, um, progresses and grows. Okay. Well, in your in your experience, what what types of mistakes are companies making in this area that um, maybe the the education of employees or the word somehow is just not getting out? And and at least from my perspective, perhaps some of these cases are becoming um, uh, let's make an example of so and so, uh, and 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 they they sue the former employee, what have you. What types of mistakes are companies making? Well, in my view, the first and most common mistake that companies have made is not having a well-thought-out, organic, uh, legal, and business strategy. Very often, they approach this problem just from the perspective of calling up their counsel, getting a sort of one-size-fits-all restrictive covenant agreement, and then they think they're fine. 
Then the employee walks out the door carrying, you know, their trade secrets in his or her briefcase. And they find themselves in a conflict, spend thousands of dollars in court to enforce what are sometimes unenforceable agreements. Um, another mistake employers typically make is they overreach. Not everything is a protectable interest in every jurisdiction. They also make the mistake of trying to tie up basically rank and file employees. These are folks who maybe they're making thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars a year. They can't hurt the company. But what the company does is they dilute the effectiveness of their restrictive covenants by tying up everyone from the receptionist to the mailroom to the executive vice president. Valerie, uh, just a just a moment. When you when you talk about restrictive covenant agreement, um, I'm, I'm thinking non compete or non disclosure. Is that is that what you're yes. referring to? Okay. Non compete, non disclosure, non solicitation of employees, and of course, most important, non solicitation of customers. I see. And when you say employers overreach, do you mean in terms of time and and uh, geography, and as far as where they can and cannot compete, or or time and and type of uh, business? Um, what what specifically do you mean in terms of employers overreaching? Um, Peter, actually, excellent point. All of the above, they overreach in terms of the scope, meaning the 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 breadth of the agreement. Is it going to affect if the company, let's say, only does business? in Massachusetts, and they have no meaningful competitors in Nevada, it's ridiculous to have an agreement that precludes that employee from working in a somewhat similar business in Nevada if it's not going to impact the company's bottom line. They also um, sometimes overreach in terms of duration. Um, it may come as a, a surprise, but judges are people too, and they don't like to put people out of work because of a restrictive covenant or a non-compete agreement. So, you know, they will honor a reasonably drafted one, let's say a year, but they don't like to see periods of time that are three years, four years, or even indefinite agreement. So that, that kind of overreaching can really rebound on the company. Okay. And and just, just to add some clarity, you, you said uh, uh, to not tie up rank and file employees, and I think you gave an example of what, for instance, they may... Uh, a, a compensation range, but even somebody. Just to be clear, and, and perhaps you agree uh, that uh, even somebody at a at a lower salary might have some know how. For instance, on the production line, that that would be important to keep confidential. Yes, they they might they might, um, and in that case, the agreement would be appropriate for that employee. But all too often, employers try to tie up absolutely everyone. Okay, and the courts do look askance at that. But but there have been some uh, higher profile um, situations, I think, in the in the software industry, if I'm not mistaken, um, recently where um, chip designers uh, remind me about. Um, yes, Mark Papermaster is the guy I think you're thinking of. He was IBM's uh, top chip design executive, and uh, he worked there for many years. He moved to Apple. In California, and IBM filed suit. I believe it was in the Southern District of New York to try to stop him. Um, I believe they were unsuccessful, although most of these cases get sort of resolved behind the scenes with settlements. Um, shortly thereafter, he left Apple and went to work for Cisco. So Mr. Papermaster, a senior executive who really has the sort of keys to the company's technology, um, that's the kind of person who ideally should be tied up with one of these restrictive covenants. 
I see. And and just to, just to use that example, whether it's Mr. Papermaster or or otherwise, if if for example somebody left Company A and and went to uh, B, uh, the next company, and perhaps that second company wasn't really a hundred percent on point, um, and, and perhaps it was. Um, approved even that they went to the second company. If they then leave the second company and go to a third company that is more of a direct competitor, would the first company have any potential to reach out uh, maybe even years later to to enforce some restrictive covenant um, against the former employee? It, it would depend on the fact. Very often technology becomes stale. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it does not. If the restrictive covenant, for example, a non-compete covenant, were still in effect, then yes. Um, however, these cases are very, very fact-specific. And one would need to know whether the, the employee, what exactly he was doing in the new company. You can imagine a large company such as HP or Dow Chemical, uh, you know, to just say you can't work for Dow Chemical because you worked at, let's say, a similar chemical company such as 3M, that wouldn't suffice. You'd really have to show that the employee was in a position where he was going to betray um, trade secrets or where he would be directly competing and he was still covered by a relevant non-competition covenant. I see. Okay. Well, what other types of mistakes are companies making? Well, a mistake that I often see is companies racing into court claiming that their employee has access to confidential information Unfortunately, the company never treated it confidentially. So, for example, many companies fail to implement appropriate policies and train their employees to consistently treat their trade secrets as confidential. For example, making sure that only people who have uh, a need to know have access to this information or encrypting it or password protecting it or um, shredding it. Even a low-level technology like shredding can be evidence of a company's intent to keep something confidential. So, so that's a very serious mistake that many companies make. Okay. So access and basically how they're treating the information. Exactly. Um, and, and as far as uh, policies, I've, I've read some decisions where uh, uh, that becomes part of the evidence of whether it was or was not treated as confidential or, or, or trade secret, even uh, that, that uh, level, um, because there was or was not a policy in place that was actually being enforced. Absolutely. Okay. Well, um, can you tell me what, what are the essential elements? It's, it's, it's instructive, uh, certainly, to, to learn from what mistakes are made or even the cases and how they, they break down. But, but um, what, what are the essential elements, in your experience, of an enforceable restrictive covenant? Well, the first important element is to determine what's protectable under the law. Not every state is the same. Um, and actually, it, it's sort of a problem that there is a variation between the 50 states, which is not to say that every state is different, but some states are markedly different in what they consider to be a legally protectable interest. Um, secondarily, you have to make sure that there's adequate consideration for the agreement. Um, most states are at-will jurisdictions, and um, that means the employees are at-will employees, and the, an at-will employment can suffice as adequate consideration for a restrictive covenant. Um, let's see. However, keep in mind if an employee has been on the job for many years and they've changed jobs several times, let's say getting promoted up the chain, 
it can be risky to rely upon a restrictive covenant agreement that they signed, let's say, in 1989 when they joined the company as, you know, a stock boy, and now they're an executive vice president. So it is best to have these documents re-signed. It is periodically, especially when there's a raise or a promotion, it's best to use some consideration, such as a bonus, a stock option grant, a raise, etc. Those types of things are essential. I also like to recommend that um, my clients consider provisions for attorney's fees and costs. Um, often what happens is these cases sort of crash and burn very fast. You run into court, you try to get an injunct- injunctive relief, and a lot of money is spent in a very short period of time. When an employee knows that he or she may be on the hook for the company's share of legal fees, that often gives them pause about whether to uh, violate their covenant not to compete or disclose confidential information. I see. And and of course, also, you mentioned scope and duration. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I had I had an example myself in uh, negotiating a uh, an acquisition agreement where we had a non compete term and the uh, the law in the uh, the agreement was was Colorado and and doing some simple research I recognized that uh, they have statutes against that type of thing uh, non compete and uh, is is that your experience when you say state to state I mean there are some states that are much more aggressive um, so I guess should should companies consider jurisdictional issues in drafting restrictive covenants? Definitely. This is a very overlooked issue. Companies often just plug in the choice of law, um, the state in which their main office is or in which their lawyers are, or even consider jurisdiction and venue where their lawyers are because it's easiest. This can be a very big mistake. For example, um, consider the case of David Donatelli. He was the president of EMC's storage division. He left EMC and went to do precisely the same kind of work for HP. Uh, Donatelli and HP sued EMC in California, seeking um, to void the non-compete agreement under California law. That's because California is very hostile to non-compete agreements. Hmm. Um, And ultimately, I believe that he went on to work for Hewlett-Packard. So they must have been successful. EMC, of course, countersued and... We had a lot of litigation, a lot of attorney's fees. At the end of the day, Mr. Donatelli was working for HP, I believe. So jurisdiction is a very important consideration. I see. Okay. Uh, let me let me uh, hold you there. We need to take a, a short break, and, and we'll return and, and discuss more uh, IP issues in employment law with Valerie Samuels. Uh, now a word from our sponsor, SunTrust. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC.
It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. Welcome back to IP Council on the Legal Talk Network. Today we are joined by Valerie Samuels, and we are discussing IP issues in employment law. Let's pick right back up where we left. Um, Valerie, uh, we were talking about what companies can do, and as far as the the uh, the uh, organization within most companies that that implements strategy, what, I'm thinking it's human resources. And and so, what what can human resources do and uh, to to play a role in protecting IP? Human resources can play a pivotal role in protecting a company's IP. If you think about it, um, they really are the gatekeeper of much of the company's IP protection strategy. For example, the first contact most applicants have with a company is oftentimes through human resources. Um, they're the ones who have the capacity and, and really the charge, the duty, to build in the systems and the personnel to create checks and balances for making sure IP is protected. For example, they're the ones who orient new employees who should be making sure that they sign and understand the appropriate agreements to protect your company and make sure those agreements are kept in a safe place where they can be accessed later if need be. Um, They're the ones who should be making sure that policies are implemented, such as no one should be bringing thumb drives to work for their own personal use. Um, consider, for example, uh, Valspar, a paint company. They had a technical director. This guy pled guilty to downloading trade secrets worth between 7 and $20 million because he wanted to convert them for the use of his new employer overseas. I mean, that's a lot of paint, <laughs> 7 to $20 million. Um, HR also can educate. They have a key role in educating and training employees, beginning with the initial orientation, um, making sure trainings are repeated each year or whenever, whenever they're needed. They also pay, play a role in creating a corporate culture. It, it's not enough to just have a non-compete or a confidentiality or non-disclosure agreement. You have to create a culture that values your most valuable resource, which are your trade secrets and your other forms of IP. That means that performance evaluation should consider compliance with company policy on IP. That means that compensation plans, and this is integral to HR's role, must reward strict adherence with company policy and, conversely, punish or discipline employees who fail to comply. So, for example, employees who receive stock or stock options or restricted stock, they have you have to make sure, and HR has to make sure that this is implemented, that they are aware that if they mess up on their restrictive covenant agreements, they might not get that stock or it might get rescinded, and they have to give it back to the company. Those are some examples. I could, I could keep going. 
if you like. Well, I, I'm also familiar with, for instance, the uh, employee leaving um, uh, either on their own or, or through some termination, uh, the exit interview and um, kind of the written reminder of their obligations, um, both to the former employee and perhaps even the new employer. Absolutely, Peter. It's an excellent point. When an employee leaves or is terminated, HR must ensure that employee receives a written reminder of his or her obligations under any confidentiality or non-competition agreements. Moreover, in this day and age, many employees receive severance as part of their exit from the company. Even in involuntary situations, they often receive severance. They should be signing a release and they should be ratifying, again, their confidentiality, non-disclosure, non-competition, and non-solicitation covenants. Likewise, these agreements should provide that the company has the right to provide their new employer with a copy of their restrictive covenant agreement or, at the very least, alert them to the fact of it. And while I'm on that subject, your company, every our clients' companies, should honor the trade secrets of other companies and make clear in writing to their employees that they're not to divulge um, trade secrets that belong to others. Yeah, and, and in that in that last area, I've had um, I've had some experiences where there have been some extremely honorable people I've worked with that have worked in prior roles for competitors. And they have been at the table, for instance, in a brainstorming session and something, they, they either leave the room politely or just don't partake in the conversation, no nods, no anything. Uh, and and it's, it's, uh, they're, they're honoring their restrictive covenants. And, um, you know, we we obviously don't don't press them for answers or push them because they have some knowledge. Um, so I've I've seen that enforced and in action, and it's uh, it's it's good. And and uh, you hope that's happening all around. But of course, if it if it were, you and I wouldn't. Uh, there would be no need for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, you see it in law firms too, where people come over and they may have information about a company uh, that they used to represent that's now adverse, and there are of course specific rules for attorneys about how to deal with those kinds of conflicts. Okay. Uh, Valerie, I want to touch on a couple of things with uh, a couple of more things with the time we have left. I mentioned at the outset uh, employees and independent contractors or consultants. And and I think perhaps this is sometimes overlooked as far as um, uh, in, in many instances to the, to the, to the other employees, a contractor might appear as, as just one of them. But uh, how, how do we handle independent contractors or consultants in, in this type of uh, um, with these concerns? Independent contractors and consultants should be treated essentially the same as regular employees. In fact, they're at a, they're a higher risk group for walking across the street with your technology in their briefcase because they don't they're not bought into the company. They're there on a contract basis. They've been hired for a particular project. So it's very important, even before they begin work, that they be locked in with appropriate restrictive covenant agreements, that they be trained, and that they be reminded in writing of their obligations at the inception and conclusion of their engagement with the company. Okay. I'd, 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 um, I'd also like to touch on, you know, these days, electronic communication uh, and and social media yeah. and 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 there's it seems everywhere 
and um, it's it's what what new twists does the this day and age of uh, electronic communication and social media what what new twist does that add to the employment attorney's job in thinking of protecting IP? Well, traditionally, mo- we've recommended that most companies. When I say we, I mean employment lawyers as a group. Um, we recommend that all companies should have an electronic communications policy. And we've usually recommended that because we're concerned about issues such as sexual harassment or racial discrimination and the like. Um, we want to make sure that employees are not using the company's resources, their IT, their um, internet, etc., to do things that are essentially illegal, such as discriminate. However, um, as we've seen and as it's become so prevalent through every level of society, there's no longer a distinction between being on the internet at work and then being on the internet at home. People are constantly on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on any number of sites. And so not only do we have to be concerned as employment lawyers about discrimination, but now electronic media and social media are becoming the new portal, the new gateway for the disclosure of potentially damaging uh, trade secrets that belong to the company. So this this is a major issue. And how about the the employee that uh, uh, maybe emails or or somehow communicates um, intellectual property? basically, of, of the company. Say they, they want to email it to a different site. I want to work from home. Um, I mean, email the project I'm working on. Um, things like things of that nature uh, is it, an easy way uh, for, for confidential and proprietary information to, to get outside the, uh, of the company. <clears throat> Definitely. And so these policies must include provisions for that. There should be uh, policies and procedures in place. If an employee wants to, shall we say, check out of the system a piece of um, software, they should have to account for it electronically. And there are ways to monitor this. There are even now software to monitor employee communications um, on Facebook and Twitter and the like. Um, it sounds a lot like sort of Big Brother, but that's really what it's coming to because employees can be very cavalier in their use of social media. And they could easily email themselves confidential information that's not encrypted, then it's on their computer, and who only knows where it's going to wind up. So the company has to have policies in place that make plain to the employees what they can do, when they can do it, and most importantly, that they have no privacy interest in any of these communications. So that the company can monitor um, where its information is going. Hmm. Okay. Let's, uh, let's just touch uh, briefly on, as we, as we wrap up, um, uh, litigation. I mean, it may come to it at, at some point. Um, a former employee, uh, you suspect, of sharing confidential proprietary information with their new employer. Uh, when is it appropriate to resort to litigation? You, you also mentioned, just as a, another bit part of the question, um, that um, – uh, perhaps the government in Economic Espionage Act um, might that might become more prevalent in, in far as um, using perhaps the criminal uh, statute um, as well. Uh, when is it appropriate to either refer to the government or to bring your own uh, case? I think 
that it is appropriate to refer to the government when you believe that someone has stolen your trade secrets and is conveying it to a competitor or to a country um, overseas, other than the United States. I think it's very appropriate. At the very least, calling the United States Attorney's Office or the District Attorney's Office, they'll hear you out. They're not going to to not take this into consideration because it is a very large and growing um, area. And I think it's going to continue to grow. Okay. Um, as far as going to court, um, that is really a case-by-case sort of decision. Um, when the trade secrets or the goodwill or the, or the key employee, whatever you're trying to protect, is so valuable and you've tried to work it out, because judges like to see that the parties have tried to work it out before you go running into court seeking injunctive relief, if you can't reach a resolution with your competitor, in other words, building a wall around that employee for some period of years where they won't be able to work in an area where they're competing with you or where they might inevitably disclose your information, then you have no choice. You have to go to court. Some companies go to court all the time because that's their culture. They want it to be clear to their employees that they are not going to just lay there and let their competitors walk all over them. And that does permeate down through the ranks. People understand that they're going to have to deal with this in court if they attempt to violate their non-compete so or their confidentiality agreement. So the answer is it's a very fact-driven analysis, um, and it really depends on the circumstances of each situation. Okay. Well, thank you for that, Valerie. And uh, I think we're going to have to leave it there. All right. I appreciate your time. Uh, as I said, that, that about does it for this edition of IP Council. Remember, you can find all of our shows at uh, LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also subscribe to this program through iTunes. And a very special thanks once again to my guest, Valerie Samuels, for joining me today. Thank you, Peter. Valerie, how can, uh, how can folks reach you for more information on this topic? Sure. They can email me, vsamuels, S-A-M-U-E-L-S, at pbl.com. They can call me, 617-973-6248, or look up my firm, www.pbl.com. Thank you, Valerie. Thank you, Peter. And, of course, you can contact me at lalaw.com or email me directly at plando at lalaw.com. Join us next time for another episode of IP Council, and have a great day, everyone. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Tuck Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening today. Join us again on the next edition of IP Council, Talking Law and IP, right here on the Legal Talk Network.